welcome to this episode of IG Talk with Robert Smallwood, where we feature interviews with IG leaders from around the globe, as well as discussions of IG news, events and best practices. Hi, today we have Dennis Kessler, who is Global Data Governance Lead at Amazon GREF, uh, which is the global real estate and facilities uh, segment. And uh, welcome to the program, Dennis. Thank you so much, Robert. Great pleasure to be here speaking with you. And uh, you are, are you still located? You're a, you're a Brit. You grew up in the UK, right? But you, are you still located in Luxembourg? Yeah. Luxembourg, it's, I've joined Amazon here in Luxembourg, but I was already here uh, for four years working as head of data governance for one of the, the bigger of the European Union institutions, the European Investment Bank. Uh-huh. And you've got to live in some exciting places. Didn't you live in Basel too? Yeah. So that's when I left the UK. Yeah. Basel is a, a, another really interesting, small, but, but unique city right in the north of Switzerland nestling on the border with both uh, France and Germany. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I had the uh, the really interesting experience of working, actually being the first lead uh, for information governance at the Bank for International Settlements. Uh, despite its title, it's more of an e- economic think tank. It's a public sector institution, which is where the world's uh, uh, central bankers and financial uh, supervisors, monetary authorities get together to agree cross-border policy. So what that means in practice is uh, the U.S. Fed, the network of uh, uh, the Federal Reserve, they're members uh, of the BIS, and they actually uh, attend uh, meetings there and actually coordinate the various banking international banking standards that are referred to as the Basel Accords, for those who might be familiar with that. Mm-hmm. Historically, there's been Basel 1, Basel 2, Basel 3, another one, another standard set of standards cooking. And they're just called Basel because they these people fly in from around the world to get together uh, in secure premises to hammer out and negotiate uh, standards that they'll take home and then start to apply. Uh-huh. And I remember, I, I think, saying... You know, when when we first met, which is on a train from New York to Hartford, Connecticut, actually going to the InfoGovCon conference in 2014, I think. And and I remember later you told me that after that conference, you were able to find a way to piggyback on the existing data governance program to expand it into an IG program. And I, I also remember your your CIO saying when he sent you over here. Uh, uh, that he didn't know what information governance was, but he knew that they needed it. So uh, I'll let you tell the rest of the story about how we met on that, that train and, and uh, that conference. Yeah, that was that was memorable. And in fact, uh, I'm going to, at, at the risk of stroking your ego excessively, Robert, I'm going to say that uh, when I was given my mandate for that for that new role as defining what information governance was and what it should represent uh, for this really interesting uh, organization, uh, I picked up your book, your the first edition of your information governance Bible, uh, and I thought to myself, this is a guy I need to to connect with somehow, uh, because I was picking up a lot of different textbooks. Yours was without question head and shoulders above the rest, certainly with my own learning curve. And then when I saw that this conference was on in Hartford uh, and that you were giving a workshop, uh, I made a very strong, compelling business case uh, for me to fly over there. And what I wasn't expecting was this guy turning up with a, a little skimpy ponytail and sandals. Uh, and when you approached me to actually propose uh, that we shared a taxi outside the train station, I thought, 
okay, what's what's happening here? I hadn't I hadn't been in Hartford before. I was pretty nervous. I'd heard terrible stories about what goes on in Connecticut. Uh, and lo and behold, the guy with the ponytail and sandals that wants to share a cab with me is the guy I've flown halfway across the world uh, to hear the wisdom uh, that he wanted to share with us. So, yeah, no, no, no ponytail was, now. No ponytail uh, now. <laughs> yeah, I was a bit disappointed. I, I assume that was a fashion, a fashion decision that you that you made. That was just a result of not grooming for two years while I was writing that, reading and researching and writing that book. <laughs> you know. <laughs> I, I hope there are no regrets. I hope the book was worth it because that's quite a big sacrifice. Yeah, it, it certainly was. And, uh, and now I have the second edition out. So I'm real happy to have you on the program. And Dennis is a member of our governing board for the SIGO Association, Certified Information Governance Officers Association. And um, we've had these conversations and, and followed each other's careers the last uh, you know seven, eight years. And Dennis, I'm just wondering from sort of a, a big picture standpoint, what changes have you seen maybe in the last two or three years? Are there any changes or trends in data governance that you've seen uh, from your perspective? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. In fact, I was just reminded today, um, if you look on LinkedIn, you will see more than ever uh, roles, whether they're contracts or, or mid to senior management positions for heads of data governance, for global data governance leads, with all courts, all, all kinds of organizations. Number one, those roles are proliferating, which says to me that there's increased recognition of the need uh, for someone to be both responsible and accountable for develop, developing and owning a data strategy and then rolling it out. But the really significant things is that those roles increasingly do not seem to be tied to IT. Hmm. I think that reflects a recognition that these are strategic management roles that are that involve business impact and not just solving esoteric technology problems that people at board level used to assume were just going to be taken care of in in noisy air conditioned rooms uh, by people with poor poor fashion sense. Yeah, so I think more of a push from the to, to the business units and from a business standpoint. And I I remember uh, in one of your presentations you saying, "Hey, I'm not really even a very technical person in uh, data governance." For the most part, is more about people than and about process than it is about technology. I I still stand by that. Uh, I stand by the fact that I'm I wear my ignorance very proudly. I mean, when I went to university, I did I did an IT degree without necessarily having a great deal of passion for the subject, but I was I was pragmatic. I was pretty sure uh, that it was going to be the gateway to a lot of interesting career opportunities. Uh, I found out. Early on in my first job with a great a great international employer based in London, uh, incidentally the the small what started off as a small uh, UK technology consultancy that actually early in its days in the early seventies won incredibly they won the contract to design the Swift network that was in nineteen seventy three they actually designed and wrote the functional specifications uh, for what became. The Swift network, and that's how I got my career start. Is actually being a Swift and financial messaging uh, specialists. But the the significant thing there was that I learned uh, that I was a really terrible programmer. Um, I don't have a I don't have an exceptionally rigorous and logical mind. And what I especially lack uh, is the patience to do debugging and work through problems where uh, I'm convinced that there is some gremlin in a machine. That's act, that actually hates me and is determined 
uh, that no matter what I do, the thing will not work. It will not compile. It will not link. It will not function. And I knew I had to get out into consulting as quickly as possible uh, and leave the programming for the, for the smart people. I actually think that turned out to be a strength because what I care about really is solving business problems. I, I am not someone that gets instinctively excited about technology and infrastructure. Uh, I do get more excited when we can apply them to solve business, business problems. And the thing that I really enjoy about information governance and data governance is the way, no matter how elegantly crafted our frameworks and our policies uh, and our strategies are, the critical success factors, the make or break in terms of adoption and real sustained uh, embedding in the business is all about people. Mm -hmm. And I care about working meaningful, meaningfully with people and having an impact on the way people are working uh, more than any other aspect of the work that I do. So it's a, it's a good uh, kind of meeting of all of these different elements, but without, without solving the sort of people pillar uh, of, of our operating models, uh, nothing else that we do is going to stick. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I uh, was never a programmer type. I couldn't just couldn't do it. Just uh, I didn't have the uh, concentration or uh, patience, you know, to do it. Really, I don't think. Uh, but I did re remember learning about the Swift Network. My first job was with Burroughs Corporation, selling mainframes to yeah. uh, banks uh -huh. uh, back in 1982. So I had to learn all about Swift and the banking system, which was uh, interesting to me. And uh, and I, I have to pause here for a second and say that, that these are opinions of your own and not of your employer on here, right? Yes, quite right. Thank you. I mean, I, I, I'm happy to speak, but I do, you know, we always have to be careful that I'm, I'm not here as a representative uh, yeah. of Amazon or any of its uh, subsidiaries. I'm speaking in a, in mm -hmm. a personal capacity. And so I want to ask you what uh, you've, you've been in the banking sector most of your career, I think, and now uh, you're in this whole different retail sector. What differences? And it's only been, what, less than a year, I think. So what differences do you see between the approach maybe to data governance versus uh, in, in banking versus that in in uh, at Amazon? Yeah. So this was this is still quite an adventure for me. Uh, this was uh, quite opportunistic. This opportunity came up in Luxembourg and it came up uh, at a good time. Uh, I, I was completely ignorant about the world of commercial real estate. And just to make it clear, uh, that the part of Amazon I work for is a, is a self-contained subsidiary, which is, which is dedicated to looking after and managing uh, and ensuring safety and efficient operation uh, with everything that goes along with that of over 400 office buildings where Amazon staff operate around the world. Uh, to, to come back to the question, there is the, the challenges that we face and the opportunities to introduce improvements. There's more commonality than I was expecting. Hmm. Uh, I, I never went into financial services industry because I was particularly interested in banking because I've been working with information and data all this time. And what, what shouldn't have surprised me is the fact that no matter what the industry is, no matter what the mission of the organizations are and their ambitions and their histories, the challenges are the same. And it all comes down to this single principle, which is that if we recognize that data is an asset, then there's a huge amount of, of activities and challenges and processes uh, and implications that fall out from that single statement. Because if something is an asset, 
then we need to know what we have. We need to know what it means. We need to know where it's being done. We need, we need to know who's trying to do what with it for what purpose. Uh, and if, if something is an asset, we need, to, we need to do the right things with it. Uh, we take this for granted. If we, if we look at the, ac- the asset of cash and money in an organization, uh, the CFOs of the world uh, don't need uh, regulatory compliance in order to drive them to do the right thing with the with the uh, with the organization's cash. If they're in a position where they need to to report and say, "Well, what cash do we have? What's our what's our what does our balance sheet look like now? What kind of tolerance do we think the board is expecting the CFO to offer? What kind of degree of error in financial reporting is expected?" Uh, the answer is generally zero, right? Yeah. Right. 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 If we talk about people, if the head of HR is asked to to present to the senior management committee, to the executive committee, to the to the board, how many how many staff do we have? How many managers above a certain level do we have? How many consultants do we have working for us doing what things? They may not have the answer at that moment, but they're expected to be able to get those answers through their through their systems and through their their processes pretty quickly. Again, what level of tolerance is acceptable? The, they should not be struggling to answer the question of how many staff do we have working for us? And when it comes to data, how can, they, how can it be acceptable that we, don't, that we can't answer the question, what data do we have? What is it worth? What does it mean? How are we using it? Where is it being used? Where, where is the risk associated? Have we identified uh, the, the critical data sets and what they're being used for? This stuff, is it should not be rocket science, and there shouldn't even be, in my opinion, a great deal of creativity involved uh, in being able to get the answers to these questions. Because as soon as we say, this stuff is an asset, no matter what it is, automatically, we should, we, there should be a minimum number of questions we're able to answer based on our understanding of what's going on, because that's what, that's what management uh, involves. And yet, we have all these fantastic adventures to try to discover what data do we have? Where is it being used? What standards uh, are, we, are we working to? What, what value does it represent? And how are people using it? And what are we doing with it? What could we be doing with it? Uh, when it comes to data and information, we we seem to be playing catch up, mm-hmm. uh, and it, it shouldn't be the case that we know more about which which bathrooms and kitchens we have in our buildings uh, than than which data sets are being used for what purposes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, mm-hmm. that's that. I, I think even in in banks, you know, the BCBS two two three nine came along. Uh, the principles for risk data aggregation and risk reporting. Uh, that was developed as part of the the fallout and the post-mortem of the financial crash, where it was identified by some of my colleagues at the Bank for International Settlements in Basel, uh, that part of the fundamental causes of the financial crash were hugely uh, systemically important banking organizations that were not, despite having a lot of very well-paid risk professionals, uh, were not managing their risk exposures well enough or effectively enough, and were either making the wrong decisions or not making the right decisions at the right time. Uh, so those principles came out that said to banks in one way or another, get your house in order. Your data is the most fundamental part of your infrastructure, uh, uh, and you've got to know what you have and, and what it represents. 
So those those uh, those standards that were imposed on banks, no matter what the cost is, they did them a huge favor because it forced them to sort themselves out and sort out their infrastructure. Uh, the thing that I see to come back to your question, banks are in the, the envious position of not having to make business cases for getting their houses in order and doing the right thing because regulators require it. They have to do it. Other in, in other industries, there isn't the luxury of having a regulator telling you that you have to do the right thing no matter what the cost, which means that there are uh, organ big organizations in other industries where they have to make a business case uh, to do the right thing. Uh, uh, and that's that's something that in a way, a lot of people working in banks, in internal audit, for example, and the risk, risk departments, even though it's a, it, it's a lot of work, they are grateful that someone outside is telling them what they know they have to do because they, they know these things. It just hasn't always been uh, fashionable to make a business case for huge, expensive, multi-year strategic change programs uh, which don't necessarily deliver uh, benefits and value, demonstrable value very quickly. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's that's why it's hard to make a business case for transformative change, because you don't necessarily get the results very quickly. But that yeah, you, there is. I was going to say, we, we were talking earlier and you said tackling culture is the hardest thing to do. Speak to that a little bit. That's um that's another thing that we have in common is uh in order for these things to stick, you know, we can we can produce our we can use books like Information Governance by Robert Smallwood mm -hmm. to guide us uh, on developing really tight policies, very comprehensive uh, frameworks, uh, and the operating models to support them. Whether or not we get the advice of external consultancies to come in and tell us some of the things that we already know, the fact is that it's relatively easy to work with with well-established vendors to procure uh, and configure and implement sophisticated tools to, to design and drive all sorts of sophisticated processes. But it's pretty rare that you're able to develop a mandate that forces people to change the way they're working. And when I say people, I don't just mean individual workers and teams. I mean entire operating units in organizations. Uh, it's very difficult to force people to change the way they think, the way they act, the way they work. People that have worked in this space, no matter what the industry is, know that when you're involved in any kind of transform transformation and change management program, you cannot do change to people. You have to do it with people, which means you have to sell it to them. And you have to be, uh, you have to be constantly emphasizing uh, the, the three points that one of my mentors at the European Investment Bank, a brilliant Belgian guy taught me, and some of you have heard this before, that the three most critical ways to engage with stakeholders are to explain to them and to seduce them with what's in it for me, what's in it for me, and what's in it for me. Mm -hmm. There is nothing else that will persuade them to adopt the disruption that we're there, that we're there to sell. Mm -hmm. so walking along with our with our shiny presentations uh, and persuading them about everything, all the ways in which the organization needs to change is not enough because these are still people that are working with tightly managed budgets, uh, tight, tight uh, 
plans and resourcing plans. And if we come along threatening to turn those things upside down, that we will not get taken, we will not be taken seriously unless we're showing them how they can benefit directly, not just for the good of the organization. Yeah, uh, and that's a good point. That helps to keep a change management program focused, I think, if you keep bear that in mind. Yeah, absolutely. The, the fact is that, that, that one of the coming back to the original point you asked, uh, the thing that I think has changed most significantly about data in the last few years is it's no longer associated with people solving IT problems and people keeping the lights on and keeping the infrastructure uh, hum, humming along nicely more than ever. Uh, for various reasons, some of them positive and some of them negative to do with the financial crash, uh, and among others, data is recognized more than ever as a business asset mm-hmm. uh, and and therefore it's it's associated with being with with solving business problems but also unlocking value uh, for business opportunities. and that's that's a, a, a transformation. that's a that's a huge shift. Mm-hmm. Hey, let's pivot just a, a bit here. And uh, is there anything uh, new hobby or activity you picked up during the pandemic, uh, or something that you're looking to get back to uh, that that you weren't able to do uh, with all the remote work? You still playing your Sousa well, phone? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so that was a that was a very big thing. Um, in, in fact, that's generous of you to say. So, what you're alluding to is the fact that one of the I mean, you know, having the chance to spend five five years living and working in in Basel for that unusual and very interesting institution that was a, a I'll, I'll I use this word quite rarely, but it was a great privilege. It was a it was a hugely significant chapter in my career uh, when I was headhunted to take on that role after being uh, while I was working in London. Uh, one of the things that was most most remarkable about that experience was not just the the employment and the career side. It was the ability to relocate to Switzerland with my family. I had, I had uh, kids that were just going into high school at that time. But one of the things that was remarkable was the fact that Basel has a has a really interesting and unique carnival. Um, Robert, you've you've lived and worked in uh, in New Orleans, where my sister works, and that's where she oh. has her family, and she's deeply into Mardi Gras. Huh. Uh, she's she's got her own little clique. She enjoys getting dressed up, uh, and they look forward to. Mardi Gras and Jazz Fest every year. Yeah. Um, when I went when I went to Basel, uh, I wasn't aware of the fact that they have their own carnival, and there's a carnival tradition that stretches in Germany from Cologne all the way down to Lucerne in Switzerland at around the same time. Uh, for similar uh, for similar historic reasons relating to the sort of uh, to the Middle Ages and the the influence of the Catholic Church on different societies there. But Basel's carnival tradition called Fasnacht uh, uh, is, is something so unique that it actually has been registered by UNESCO as a, as a world cultural uh, heritage properly and it, wow. property. And, it, and it's deeply, deeply important to the people of Basel, Basel and very traditional uh, with a great deal of amazing costumes uh, and incredible traditions. I won't elaborate on here, but the fact is, I had the incredible joy of being accepted as an ignorant foreigner who doesn't speak the local dialect, but I was still invited to join one of the uh, the usually traditionally closed music groups. And they threw this sousaphone at me uh, and said, we don't need you to, to be a skilled musician. Just blow into it, wiggle your fingers. And if you blow for long enough, some kind of noise is going to come out. 
uh, <laughs> and if if you you know practice, come to the rehearsals, and sooner or later, uh, something, uh, some kind of noise that fits in with what we're already doing will come out. Uh, during four years, I had this great honor of of joining this traditional music group and participating in their carnivals. Uh, but I also shared with my my colleagues and my buddies there uh, the agony of the fact that because of the pandemic, uh, for the first time in, I, th I think it was only the second time in 300 years, they had to cancel their carnivals uh, for health reasons. And it was only uh, this year that they were able to resume after two years. And that was a joyous moment for them. Uh, so my suzerphone's in my suzerphone's down in the basement. It's got a little bit of dust on it that needs to be brushed off, but that was definitely an incredible uh, chapter in my life. Interesting. That's great. I had had no idea about that carnival. I'll have to check into it a little more. Hey, thanks for being with us today, Dennis. It was really helpful. I thought you had some great insights and be helpful to our audience out there. And uh, hopefully I'll see you online and hopefully we'll get back to traveling and maybe sometime again in person soon. Robert, it's always a great pleasure. And I look forward to getting, getting together with you face to face. Fantastic. to another episode of IG Talk, the leading voice in the industry, which features IG leaders, news, events and best practices. Tune in next time to stay up to date on the changing world of information governance.